Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm very glad to have you uh, with us today. We've got a lot to talk about, uh, including we're going to be saying goodbye, and I'll talk more about this later in the show, to our senior producer, Amelia Brock, who we are all going to miss very, very much. And we'll have a few more words to say about her departure at some point as the show continues. Um, But there is a lot to talk about, starting with COVID-19 news here in the state of Georgia. Um, It's gotten out of control. I think that public health officials like Kathleen Toomey uh, would acknowledge that. Um, And the state is somehow trying in its own way to respond. We're going to talk in a minute about what that means, what Governor Kemp has now announced he wants to do. But just in the meantime, we should say the seven-day rolling average of confirmed and probable infections in Georgia across the state is nearing the same peak it hit last winter. Um, And on last Friday... We had state officials say that they had the fourth worst day ever of the virus. Hospitals are swamped with patients. Uh, Some of them, some of the COVID-19 patients uh, make up like 40 percent of all hospitalizations. Ninety percent of intensive care unit beds have been filled across the state. And the state uh, continues to have a nursing shortage, which predates the pandemic, but is even worse Uh, now than it was back then. Um, So we want to talk about Governor Kemp's response to that and more as I introduce the panel uh, today. Um, We're very glad to welcome back to the show State Senator Michelle Au. This is a great day for you to be with us, um, Michelle, because in addition to your work as a member of the as a Democrat in the state Senate representing Johns Creek, you are a physician and you work with the Emory Healthcare System, right? That's correct. And thank you so much for having me back, Bill. I think this is a tremendously important issue to talk about, obviously, in this moment, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. Um, And I'll be interested in hearing your report on exactly what you're dealing with in your workplace. Fred Smith, Professor Fred Smith, back with us, Professor of Constitutional Law at Emory University. Fred, how are you today? I'm good. It's always great to uh, to start the, the day here. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I'm really glad to hear you say that. We're always happy when you do the show. The same with you, Leo Smith, uh, Republican political consultant and the founder and head of the Engaged Futures Group, which is a government relations, government affairs group. Uh, Leo does some lobbying. Um, Leo, how are things for you? They're going really well. And uh, as I always say, this is a good time for bridge building. Uh, one of the things that you have always felt strongest about is figuring out how to bring people across racial and ethnic ethnic lines, across partisan political lines together on issues, education being one of the major issues that you uh, take on. And Renee Alegria is back with us, president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital. Renee, um, I have to acknowledge I did not look at the um, website for Mundo Hispanico today. You got a big story on the on the homepage that we should know about? Come on, Bill. I apologize. You know, you know better than that. I, I usually uh, try I'm, to do it. 
I expect you to bone up on your Spanish, you know. <laughs> I look at the Google Translate version of the page, to be honest, Renee. <laughs> that's, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I you know, we, we have we have several big stories. Obviously, we're, we're covering um, a lot of what's happening in Ida, in Louisiana. Um, the Hispanic community in and around Louisiana was largely credited with building back Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. So we're very vested into, you know, not only the tragedy there, but the the lives potentially lost and, of course, how this affects uh, well, the Hispanic community there uh, and, and, you know, in the surrounding states. Absolutely. I understand that. Um, let's talk about COVID. Dr. Au, I want to start with you on this. Governor Kemp uh, yesterday uh, held an, a, a news conference in which he announced some new steps he is taking. There are many people, including at one point or another you, who have felt that Governor Kemp has not gone far enough in pushing to mitigate this new spread of the virus. Yesterday, he did several things. It, it strikes me the most significant of them, but I'll certainly listen to you and the rest of the panel on this, being for the first time ever, the governor is offering a financial benefit for people to be vaccinated. Something like 325,000 Georgians are covered by the state health benefit plan. And those who be, get in that plan who get fully vaccinated, I think that includes retirees, by the way, although I'm not completely certain about that. If you get fully vaccinated and you're part of that plan, um, you're going to get basically uh, – a, a, a gift card for something like $150, a Visa gift card, or a $480 credit in your health care expenses. It's a, it, what do you think about the fact that Governor Kemp has taken that step? Is it is it really moving in the right direction, Michelle? I think that is a great first step to take, and I really do want to commend the governor for taking that first step. I think this is the first time that we've seen, actually, in the state of Georgia, the uh, the proposal to be vaccinated, to be incentivized in this way. And um, I do think that um, we haven't really done enough up until this point to promote what is the beating heart of public health, which is prevention, right? I think up until now, we've heard the governor talk a lot about um, sort of reactive measures, such as uh, increasing staffing to hospitals, increasing oxygen delivered to hospitals, I think we heard yesterday, which are all very important because hospitals do need to be supported and they are under great duress at this moment. But I don't think that's enough because it's, uh, it's just putting a Band-Aid on the problem, right? We really need to look at preventative measures, including vaccination, and not just simply giving it lip service and encouraging people to become vaccinated, but really shifting that cost-benefit um, cost analysis for people that is at the core of every healthcare decision is like, how much does this cost me to do it? And how much does it benefit me, right? Shifting that calculus towards the benefit and a financial incentive is a great first step. And I really commend Governor Kemp for doing that. Um, Leo, there's a lot of talk about just what Michelle, I was saying, uh, Delta Airlines being the a prime example of a company that has now said, if you're not willing to be vaccinated, then you're going to pay a premium of $200 a month for your health, health insurance. Because if you get COVID, it's going to cost this company, which is self-insured, at least $50,000 for your care. So we're seeing that in private industry. But I think Republicans particularly are going to push back hard on similar measures uh, from Republican governors like Kemp. Well, again, our governor, um, Brian Kemp, has taken a, uh, a very strong position on encouraging vaccination. But he's always been very strong on allowing the private sector 
to be able to act with innovation and with, uh, you know, pertinence to their place of work on how to, to exact these policies. And so, you know, he's consistent in saying that private sector should be able to respond in the way that's best for their business and their workers, and he's allowing that without overstepping and overreaching with federal government or state government in this case um, being too invasive in people's private lives. Renee? I think it's a good thing, obviously, that he's taking this stance and the measures that, uh, as as the panel has indicated, is largely preventative. I, I I can't help but think, though, that it's, you know, a little late right now, it, given that we're here again in the middle of a, just this wave, this, you know, our hospitals are, are full, there's panic with parents again, how this is going to affect their children, the the rate of the positive rate of kids in the state is just skyrocketing. So here you have a, a governor that's doing the right thing by, you know, taking care of the of, of what's happening on the ground. But where was this, you know, a year ago? Where was this the the rhetoric doesn't didn't match the the action here and that's that's a little concerning. What I'd love to hear uh, from the Republicans on this issue is really the fact that, A, this is not a partisan issue, that we are united against a common enemy, which is COVID-19, not each other. And the second thing I'd like to point out is that this um, encouragement of preventative measures and vaccination in particular, and masking really, falls neatly in line with a lot of uh, Republican talking points, and one of which is taking personal responsibility and realizing that the choices you make have costs. So back to uh, the issue with Delta Airlines charging a premium for employees that um, choose to not remain vaccinated. I think we have to um, show people that the choice to remain unvaccinated, if we are emphasizing the choice, needs to come with a cost because it has a societal cost, whether you're paying for it or not. And we need to let people understand that cost in a way that makes sense to them. Fred, here's uh, just some of what Governor Kemp said in response to to uh, the things that uh, Renee Allegri and Michelle Auer are suggesting. He said, um, quote, this is America. Um, and he went on to say the tension over mandates is causing people to be even more divided by partisan lines. He said it's just causing division. It's causing people's blood pressure to go up. We need to continue to educate and advocate for people to get the vaccine. Fred, um, weigh in on that. Yeah, well, as is often true, right, there is these kind of twin uh, American impulses uh, that are happening at the same time, right? And so one of these impulses is, um, you know, personal freedom, personal autonomy, right? Freedom from the government. Um, and uh, But then the other um, is uh, this idea um, that we are in this together and that um, our actions uh, have a broader impact um, on those around us. Um, and it's important to think about them. Um, and uh, and so it is, appears that what the governor is attempting to do is thread the needle. Um, and what I also hear in the quote that you just said is this sort of um, uh, that, that some of this is also about messaging. Uh, it sounds like almost for him, right? That um, that language about personal responsibility may encourage people to think about their neighbor more than language around a mandate. And I don't, you know, I don't know what the 
um, the data shows in terms of whether or not that messaging is um, more effective, but that's what I hear um, in that particular quote. Yeah, Leo, I, I want to pick up on what have you pick up on what Fred said, because I think he makes a point that I've given a lot of thought to. Is this really what people like um, Republicans like Brian Kemp believe um, that that they do want to leave it up to individuals? Or is this, in fact, political messaging and positioning in advance of what's expected to be a tough uh, contest uh, in, in many races uh, next year in Georgia? Well, I mean, political rhetoric is infectious. I mean, if, if you don't get into politics, politics will get into you. So you're never separate from politics when you are a public servant in life. Um, it's always going to impact you. Even if you're a medical doctor, politics is going to impact your career and your, and your industry. So that's real. Um, but what uh, uh, Dr. Smith and Dr. All both have said, that there's a practicality about this. And it is a practical thing. Um, where you said that there's a bell curve relationship between interventions from the state and individual freedom. And that for conservatives, there is a sort of protective threshold that they feel like, well, when you come into my house and you tell me what to do, conservatives, um, for good or bad, um, do have this you know, realm of libertarianism within our veins. And, and that is the idea of liberty over um, statism. And so, so that is an important thing. It's not really, it's practical even. It's not just rhetoric. It's not just, um, you know, sort of partisan bickering. That is a belief by people regardless of um, partisan. I mean, for instance, black Americans are, are likely to reject this uh, desire for the government to intervene on medical needs as well as a Republican uh, might reject that. So that is a real thing that is a practical fear and concern or just a p position or belief. The governor does and has been consistent all along, all throughout his all policy ever, uh, endeavors of his and allowing private sector and individuals to have more freedom than not. And, yeah. and that's just been his, his, his way of leading. I have said several times on the show that Governor Kemp is not – uh, uh, the governor of Florida. He's not Ron DeSantis in Florida, that's for sure. And now the state of Florida has taken a really dramatic action. They are following up on a threat they made that if schools uh, do not obey their mandate, you are not allowed to require masks, they are now starting to deny state funding to schools that require masks. We are not there with Governor Kemp, and I think we can all be very grateful that he hasn't followed that line. Um, let me, let me, Renee, move on to another aspect of this story. I thought another thing that I heard yesterday from Dr. Kathleen Toomey, the head of the Department of Public Health, that was really disturbing, was the fact that we're now having a number of incidents around this state where anti-vaxxers have uh, been threatening or um, harassing uh, public health workers who are setting up vaccine clinics in their communities. One North Georgia mobile clinic was actually shut down yesterday uh, because of uh, the protests against their being there. And, um, you know, Dr. Toomey said, you know, I'm used to this is essentially what she said. As the head of the Department of Public Health, this sort of behavior, it comes with the territory. But she said public health workers do not deserve this. And Nancy Nidham, who is the spokesperson for DPH, said, aside from feeling threatened themselves, staff realized no one would want to come to the locations for a vaccine under the circumstances, so they packed up and left. That is really 
uh, troubling news, Renee. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I can't say anything more plainly other than that it's just disgusting behavior we're witnessing. It's It makes so many people's blood boil that there are individuals that are targeting these frontline workers that are doing their jobs to save lives in in Georgia, and they're not able to because they feel threatened or in danger. And you can't help but think back to the uh, rhetoric, the misinformation of the last several months of the Trump administration and how that bridged into, you know, this jockeying position of local politicians jumping onto that bandwagon. And this is the monster mob that they've now created. We, we all we all saw that that clip of uh, Trump at a rally the other day asking people to get their vaccination. Thankfully, he is on that and folks just roundly booing. They can't control that mob any longer. And it is scary what the 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 extent of what this mob will do in the coming weeks. Michelle and then Fred. One thing I also want to point out just to, to ground this in what we're really seeing out in the field and also just to reinstall a little bit of empathy that I think has been lacking in our discourse around this issue is we have to realize that this these sorts of protests and these sorts of, um, you know, threats of violence are taking place against workers who have been working for more than a year and a half overworked, under-resourced, underpaid, hard public servants who are really just trying to do their best to help people, right? And on top of that is now with this fourth wave, this moral injury that I really think we need to address when we talk about burnout in the healthcare sector, this moral injury of seeing a fourth wave that threatens to overtake all other waves, avoidable suffering and death, right? That these people have worked so hard to try to avoid that it is really extremely difficult, especially psychologically for healthcare workers and for public health workers in this moment to weather. So to layer on top of this actual threats to their physical safety is uh, deplorable, frankly. And um, people really need to consider when they have these protests and threaten people that these are real people, too, and they are simply trying to do their jobs to protect all of us. Fred, uh, please jump in here, but let me, if you don't mind, add a layer to this. It's it's an interesting contrast and a, and a stark and uh, kind of dark contrast to last year when we saw crowds of people lining up on their balconies in New York City and other cities cheering on health workers at 7 o'clock every night. And now we've reached a point where, a, I assume, a small handful, Fred, I, I would be really, really uh, disturbed if we found out this was a large movement, but there are people who are now threatening healthcare workers who are trying to protect the very people who are threatening them. Yeah, I mean, this is it's deplorable. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I would say across the political spectrum, um, mainstream folks have encouraged people to get vaccinated. Um, it's not, I mean, with the exception of um, the Congresswoman from North Georgia, Northwest Georgia. Um, there's who went to Alabama and actually said the opposite of what Trump said, which is, I'm glad to be in the least vaccinated state in America, to which people cheered. There are there are those sorts of outliers, but that's not, um, at least 
based on what I've observed, that's not um, really the norm or, or the mainstream within either uh, political party. And so one does question, where does this stuff come from, right? And um, it's massive disinformation on the Internet, on the Facebooks and on the Twitters and the TikToks, but also um, in, you know, in, in sites like Telegram and all of this where people are kind of constantly exchanging information and disinformation in these echo chambers. If there is anything hopeful in this, and you know, I always try to look for the hopeful, um, is that this kind of massive dis- disinformation is not unique to the American context. And um, one of the things that I heard yesterday um, on, uh, on NPR as they were talking about the story in France and increased vaccinations there, I think they've maybe they've got reached into the 70 uh, percent in, in France. Um, at the end, they said, and the number of uh, anti, uh, anti-COVID measure protests have gone significantly down, um, uh, which is a reminder that some of this is actually not, I mean, we think about it because we, we live here, so we think about it as happening here. It's actually more global. Um, and uh, other places have found ways to get some of this under control. And so um, I think, you know, it's important to kind of look to, you know, what, what did they do successfully um, to move themselves away from that nonsense? All right. I'll tell you what I'd love to do. Um, we'll, we'll finish up. We finished up a conversation about COVID for the time being. We'll certainly be continuing to follow it in the days ahead. But we've got a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind today. So why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way and move on to some of the other topics in the political news. We'll be right Right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, St- State Senator Michelle Al, Renee Alegria, Leo Smith, and Fred Smith are uh, both with us today. They're no relation, by the way. Uh, but listen, People who listen to this show regularly know that I am the worst time manager on the planet. I always run out of time for the issues that we want to talk about. And so I'm going to do this now because I don't want to run out of time for this. Um, Amelia Brock, who has been our senior producer for the last year, is moving on after today's show. She has a wonderful opportunity to go work with uh, a former boss who all of you out there who listen to GPB radio know, Virginia Prescott, who's now in the podcasting world. And I'm just going to read a quick thing that I wrote to our staff, Amelia. While Amelia's sitting here, we're in the studio today to say goodbye to her. I said, if you spend 15 minutes talking with Amelia Brock, you'll learn several things about her. She's proud of her Finnish heritage. Her favorite streaming service is the Criterion Channel. And one of her favorite activities is hunting through record bins to find rare or unusual vinyl albums. Don't even get her started on her thing about African jazz. But if you work with her for a year, as Sam Burmistaus and I have, you learn more. She takes great pride in being a strong and dedicated manager, never fails to nail down details that have made political rewind run smoothly. She's fiercely smart and is never shy, sometimes unfortunately, about letting you know how she feels about every subject at hand. But most of all, she is passionate about making sure that diverse voices are heard on GPB radio and her expansion of our range of panelists will be the indelible mark she leaves on this show. Amelia, you're in the studio with me now. We are going to miss you, but I'm very excited about seeing the work that you and Virginia Prescott do together. Bill, you're going to make me cry on live radio. <laughs> <laughs> I hope things. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful future with uh, Virginia. What's the word that your gr- grandfather, your Finnish grandfather might say? Oh, 
Heipa Nathan. What do those mean? They mean bye. See you right. later. <laughs> <laughs> Amelia Brock, um, you've been a wonderful part of this team, um, and I just wish you nothing but the best. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bill. <laughs> I, I, I'm so happy to have been on this show, and, and I appreciate everyone out there, my colleagues, all of the amazing guests who make us sound so smart every day, and to everyone listening, you guys make what we do possible. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, we're going to miss her. Let's move on. Uh, can we talk for a few minutes um, about, let's talk about the Buckhead City movement, which um, is really picking up steam in, in ways that I think might surprise some people. Renee, we now know that one of the uh, uh, legislators who's signing off on the legislation to create a referendum to make Buckhead an independent city is uh, the governor's floor leader in the state Senate, um, which, you know, Governor Kemp is not commenting on whether he supports this movement, but uh, the fact that his floor leader is suggests some pretty rough times ahead, perhaps, in the city-state relationship. Renee? Yeah, uh, suddenly the city-state relationship is like an episode of Real Housewives, Atlanta <laughs> version, right? Um, look, I... I, I, I I don't think anyone really knows how this is going to play out, right? I, this is we're we're entering, um, in, in some would say uncharted territory, but then others would say, okay, we've seen this happen for other reasons in other part, part parts of the state, right? So it is going to be kind of a I think watch and wait and see how the political posturing. Um, kind of evolves into who is going to do what. But um, let's just say that it does nothing, I think, for positive relations that uh, the city has with state government. Um, it's been rocky, and it will be rocky. So, um, Michelle Au, you work with uh, Senator Clint Dixon, who is uh, now signing on along with your other colleague, Brandon Beach, uh, who is the uh, lead sponsor on this legislation for a referendum um, how seriously do you think this thing uh, is is becoming on your side of the building in the state Senate? Well, look, I think clearly one of the issues that Republicans are running on in 2022 is crime, right? This has been very clear. And this push for the Buckhead cityhood is really premised on that issue that, you know, divorcing, quote unquote, divorcing Buckhead from Atlanta and draining those tax dollars from the city of Atlanta is somehow supposed to make all surrounding areas safer, right? I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I don't see anything in the referendum or any suggestions about uh, some force field or impenetrable barrier between cities um, in any of these cityhood plans. And I think most people can understand that what happens in our capital city of Atlanta has effects far further than the neighborhoods that it touches, right? Crime is a real issue. Uh, I think it's one that voters really care about. Um, and there are unmistakably, as we've alluded to, you know, partisan forces at play in this cityhood proposal issue. We'd be naive to assume otherwise, because really, what, what isn't political these days? But what I think is especially important, and we can talk about this more, is that when we look at these plans, and like you, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but when we look at these proposed plans, that we have really established and respected um, bodies evaluating it, uh, especially bodies that have a long history of being nonpartisan, such as the Carl Vinson Institute, which uh, has historically evaluated these plans, as opposed to uh, maybe more partisan players that have more of a vested interest in, in one outcome or another. Um, Fred Smith, this is a matter of 
particular importance in terms of your role on the board of Invest Atlanta, where you are part of an organization that is uh, looking at the city's ability to attract business, to um, uh, send, put resources in the right places. I mean, what's your take on all this? Yeah. And so speaking for myself, not for the agency. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, obviously, you're right. I mean, that's one of the lens through which I think about this. I mean, I'll, I'll go a little bit further um, than Michelle slightly, um, which is not only will this not help with crime, this will worsen crime. This will be an accelerant for crime. Buckhead leaving will make crime worse. And the reason for that is that if we, if the city of Atlanta loses these tax dollars that have been used for police raises. Last year, raise, uh, police raises went up thir- uh, 33%. Um, every mayor who, every mayoral candidate right now is pledging more police officers. If this city loses 40% of its tax base, how on earth will the city be able to pay for that? And to, uh, and to Michelle's point, that crime escalation that will inevitably happen in the city, it's not going to just stay here. Um, for the, it's people will, the, 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 out, the results of that are going to spill over um, into mm-hmm. neighboring areas. And so we have to learn how to think about issues like this on a regional basis um, because we are all in this together. And a failed city of Atlanta is a failed metro. Um, and a failed metro um, is a failed Georgia. Um, and so that, that's what makes it different than the Real Housewives. The Real Housewives, they fight, ratings go up, good for money, good for business. When we fight this way, the opposite happens. And I'm deeply, deeply concerned. It's an existential threat um, when it comes to public safety um, and when it comes to attracting business going forward in the city. Leo, let me bring you into this, but but add this layer. Um, one of the other developments that uh, has, has sparked some concern is that the House Government Affairs Committee uh, held a hearing relatively quietly the other day in which the chairwoman of the committee, Darlene Taylor, uh, moved to expand, and Michelle Au already kind of referred to this, the sources that could be used to approve viability studies for creating independent cities. So as Michelle pointed out, it has long been the sole responsibility of the Carl Vinson Institute at the University of Georgia, which is a highly respected organization in terms of crunching numbers for just this sort of thing. And now the committee is saying, well, you know, yeah, maybe the Carl Vinson Institute, but you know what else? We could bring private uh, operators into play here. We could we could get contracts with a private uh, uh, entity to do the viability study, and that has some Democrats, Leo, really concerned. Well, you know, and but I think that we have to be careful about falling into some of our partisan bubble traps again. Um, look, the city of Stonecrest, why I had a club, I had a health club for many years, um, Lithonia, Georgia, largely black, <laughs> largely blue. Um, it is, they're, they're not doing something nefarious to say that they want it to be a city and they are. South Fulton is not a Republican city. It is a Democrat city. 
Mapleton, Georgia, is largely black and Democrat. So for us to fall back into this idea that this is a Republican versus Democrat kind of thing, we're contributing to a problem that we also assert on COVID is a negative thing to do. So let's not fall into these partisan bubbles about that sort of thing. The city of Atlanta has already the tax base of Buckhead, but yet they have not fully fully staff their police department. So money isn't obviously the only issue. And let's not forget that individual lives in Buckhead are being lost. That's real to those individuals. Homes are being broken into, people are being run over by cars when they're jogging down uh, a sidewalk. When they want cityhood, they want the ability to control their own lives and make decisions based on their communities, based on the resources they have available. We have to be open to the practicality of that. Fred? Yes, so a couple things. The first is that the Stonecrest example, the Brookhaven example, she didn't give her Dunwoody, and all, all of the South Fulton, all of these are examples of when there was an unincorporated area of a county um, and a city was created. This is different. This is a divorce. <laughs> this is a city breaking up, which is unlike anything that we've seen with the exception of when uh, Eagle Landing considered becoming its own city and leaving Stockbridge. And when the voters there took a close and sober look at what the economic impact would have been, um, they decided against it. Um, yes, public safety is a real issue, and everyone who lives in the city and in this region thinks about it every single day. But what I'm saying is that for this city to lose 40% of its tax base will make the entire region less safe. Michelle? Back to the point, Bill, about uh, who is going to be looking at the viability studies. Obviously, no one's saying that no private entities have the ability to be respected and nonpartisan. However, they certainly don't have the track record that the Carl Vincent Institute does, right? And I think in this moment, especially, and this is a bigger issue, in this moment where politics has bred distrust on both sides, like at no other time in our history, um, having that sort of established track record of being Nonpartisan really matters tremendously, and I think that's what people are trying to emphasize. Um, Renee, uh, before we move beyond this, let's take a, the, the, the longer lens view of this again for just a couple of minutes here. Um, we, we've already watched uh, during the tenure of Keisha Lance Bottoms as mayor and Brian Kemp as governor a complete collapse of the cooperative arrangement between city leaders and state leaders in trying to work together to solve problems that affect each uh, entity, um, that became a problem. Um, This fight, as it moves into the legislature with a new mayor coming into office next year, uh, suggests that there's nothing that's going to solve that kind of breach anytime soon. I mean, I suppose, I mean, Kasim Reed was able to forge a great working relationship with Nathan Deal. But partisan politics have become much more strident since then, and and this issue coming into the legislature next year is doesn't seem to have any uh, give us any hope for for uh, repairing the problem. Unfortunately, uh, as you as you lay it out like that, yes, it does 
look bleak. The next couple of years don't look very positive in terms of forging alliances and working together. We're, we're you know, we're, we're right now, the state is battling several fronts, right? Whether it be COVID, whether, you know, here, here you know, Buckhead uh, seceding, it's, it, you know, things seem helter-skelter right now, and it's going to take the right candidate to have the right larger vision, vision to, to really take a look at what is good for all of Georgia uh, that will hopefully win out. I'm, you know, a positive person by nature, but these, these trying times certainly make, uh, make me pause. Leo, I'm going to give you a last chance, but then I got to get to a break. Well, you know, I am the happy warrior and to be hopeful <laughs> along with Renee is, is my nature. The DNA of a city, uh, Ebenezer Howard back in England said that every time a city reaches 35,000 people in population, you should create a new one. He said colonize, but we can evolve from the word colonization <laughs> and just use it, uh, create a new city. So these are old problems. Now, our resilience has been tested by by the pandemic, by political rhetoric, by Donald Trump. Um, our resilience has been tested. Our vulnerabilities are obvious. That's when innovation and newness can happen. So the worst thing that can come out of the cityhood argument is to look at the failure of government and look how to make it better. And we can do that better together than we can do it apart. I got to get to a break. I do want it noted that for the first time in the seven and plus year history of Political Rewind, it is Leo Smith who has invoked the name of Sir Ebenezer Howard an urban planner in the early 20th century in England. Thank you for that, uh, Leo. Let's get to a break. We'll be back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Fred Smith, you're the Athens native on this panel, so I'd like very much to begin this with you and then, of course, bring everybody into the conversation. Um, Herschel Walker, now a declared candidate, essentially, he's filed the paperwork. He hasn't spoken out much. He, he did release a video uh, pledging his allegiance to the state of Georgia. Um, but he's now fair game for people who are going to start, uh, you know, attacking him for his past behavior. Uh, Greg Bluestein in the AJC the other day wrote this. A Texas woman told police in 2012 that when she tried to end what she said was a long romantic relationship with Herschel Walker, he threatened to, quote, blow her head off and then kill himself. This is not the first uh, report of, of, of uh, domestic violence or threats of, vi of violence that have been reported about Herschel Walker. But here's my question as a starting point for you, Fred. This is one of the greatest heroes in Georgia sports history. I'm just curious, when, when you think about this, how significant will even reports of domestic violence or threats like this be in, in comparison to the worship of sports heroes like a Herschel Walker? Oh, wow, that's a... Uh... That is a question that I do not know the answer to. I'll just completely <laughs> confess that. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'll, I'll say it, um, it depends on a number of things, right? So um, it depends on how he responds. Um, it, uh, you know, it depends on um, kind of moving forward. I think kind of how much more this is in the news versus other things um, are uh, are in the news. Um, it depends on how effectively, I mean, it, um, in today's political culture, false equivalence is, um, is, uh, it's, it tends to, it's often very effective. 
Um, and uh, and so I think they'll, you know, so it depends on how well that works out with people comparing uh, with uh, Herschel Walker's um, uh, alleged domestic violence against things that actually look nothing like that. Um, but that, but that, that, that does tend to be sort of kind of sometimes effective political messaging. Um, so I think it's just really, really early. And again, perhaps the most important thing is how does he respond? You know, Michelle, uh, it's, what's interesting in the Bluestein story is that the police officer who took this report wrote that, quote, Dean grew very reserved as she spoke and worried her statement with Harmwalker, whom she described as the love of her life, love of her life. But then she did say she was so alarmed that by the uh, the officer said he was so alarmed by the allegations he wanted to document them. And by the way, uh, the woman involved here uh, has died, so she's no longer able to uh, talk about this at all. Michelle? I think the larger issue here that we need to look at outside of any specific allegation is, you know, there's obviously been a lot of excitement and speculation around Herschel Walker's entry into this race. And I think these stories really highlight something that becomes readily apparent once the buzz from his launch and announcement uh, dies down, which is that, uh, you know, obviously, as you said, many people in Georgia know Herschel Walker's name and they're aware of his career as a former football star. I will point out, however, um, <laughs> that he may have somewhat less name recognition with the younger Georgia voters and mm. people like me and more than a third of voters in Georgia who did not grow up in this state, right? But the thing is, um, we really have no good sense of what kind of a candidate Herschel Walker is going to be, right? We have no great sense, at least I don't, of the issues that he is campaigning on or he cares about. Uh, we have no great sense of his investment or even his knowledge of Georgia politics, given that he hasn't lived here for quite some time. And we've only really just started to examine whether or not he's fit to hold office. And this is one of the first of, I assume, many, um, you know, points where we're going to be looking at this issue. You know, his candidacy just really recently officially begun and he's effectively i think cleared the republican field but it's already being dogged by these issues uh, and stories about his fitness to lead and we're really going to have to look at this carefully now Le that we're moving forward leo um the, 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 the herschel walker could either be the great hero of the republican party next year or the guy who just sinks their chances of retaking the Raphael warnock senate seat right Indeed. I mean, it can be the a tale of a great success or the tale of a great disappointment. And, and, and I actually fear for Herschel um, Walker, um, Walkerilla for Amelia uh, Finnish crowd, um, to, you know, enter into this race not knowing, <laughs> you caught that, Bill, uh, not knowing what, what um, politics is really all about. Uh, to be an athlete of his caliber, to be a celebrity of his caliber means that people tend to give you the benefit of the doubt all the time. And as Dr. R is saying, we don't really know what Herschel Walker's policies are. I met with him back in 2013 with the chairman of the Republican Party, John Padgett, when he was in Athens. He is familiar with the uh, political scene here in Georgia somewhat. He keeps in touch. Um, but I think the telltale is going to be um, when he gets into debates. Uh, we're going to be able to craft, as a political consultant, you can craft messaging and branding of a candidate without them opening their mouths. And, and so, so we really still won't know him until we actually have one-on-ones and we see him in a debate. 
the first time that you'll probably see Herschel Walker out publicly talking to people would probably be at that uh, September 11th event, not that Joe Biden wanted, but the Joe, but the uh, September 11th event called the Georgia Alabama War. <laughs> that game, September 11th in, Ath- in Athens um, this year, is probably when you'll see Herschel Walker come out and speak to the crowd. Oh, that's a really interesting uh, uh, observation, Leo. Well, well, we'll remember that you said that and see how it plays out. Um, well, Renee. Bruce, you know, had his own ownership of the story here on, on Political Rewind. Yes. That's my contribution. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that. Um, Renee, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch how the dirt that's going to be dug up on Herschel Walker plays out. First of all, he himself has acknowledged some of the, the, the problems that he suffered, multiple personality disorder. Um, he's talked about his uh, behavior towards some women. I mean, so he's already done that. But what I'll be interested in watching is if you're Gary Black, if you're Latham Sadler, if you're Kelvin King, you're running against him first in the Republican primary, and then assuming he wins the primary, you're the Raphael Warnock campaign, you're you're not going to directly run ads attacking Herschel Walker on the basis of his possibly threatening the life of a woman who wanted to lead him. That's going to be in the hands of third-party PACs, and it has the potential, as it's going to for Raphael Warnock, too, to get really nasty and dirty in the year ahead. Yeah, you, you almost uh, you almost feel sorry for him entering this this arena, you know, I mean, he he was a great sports figure. He 82 Heisman winner, marvelous. But this is a different Georgia than his Georgia when he lived and grew up here, you know. And I think that, um, well, folks are going to have to be careful with how they approach him so as not to condescend to him and the issues that he brings to the table. Um, I think, luckily for the Democrats, say if Walker does, you know, get through, um, Warnock is an incredible politician with a, a lot of compassion and empathy. Um, and I think that you're going to see him uh, embrace him in a way that shows and touts the goodness of Walker, but how that goodness doesn't translate into the individual that you want representing Georgia in the United States right. Senate. We're going to watch how that plays out. Um, Fred, let me turn to one other issue uh, while we have some time left. Um, the the organization Black Voters Matter and the ACLU filed a lawsuit in federal court alleging that uh, the cost of a 58-cent first-class stamp to mail an absentee ballot back to your uh, county uh, it amounts to a poll tax, uh, that there should be some other way to do this, uh, free postage, whatever. Um, and, and a three-judge panel of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed it and said that they felt that 58-cent cost was not only not a poll tax, they said this really almost amounts to a frivolous lawsuit. You're the constitutional law professor on the panel, Fred. Talk to us about this. Yeah. So from a presidential standpoint, right, part of one of the Earlier precedents is from 2002, um, when um, Georgia Republicans first came to power um, and required voter ID. Um, they increased the amount of money that it cost to get one uh, at the same time uh, in the same bill from $5 to $35. Um, and a federal court uh, concluded that that was a poll tax. 
Um, and so uh, what you see here is um, attempting to rely on some of those earlier precedents. The court in this case rejected the idea that um, that uh, that a that a that a, uh, a postage stamp is a tax. Um, they said that it's sort of just kind of the cost um, that goes along um, with uh, exercising um, this particular right. Um, and um, they also noted that there were other ways in which someone could vote that didn't involve using a stamp at all, um, such as the ability to go to um, uh, to go to a government building um, and uh, and to drop it off. And so there were kind of there were two theories. One was a poll tax theory, and one was that this violated uh, the right to vote; that it was a, an unconstitutional burden. Um, the court concluded it's not a tax because it was simply a cost. Um, and the court concluded um, that it didn't uh, violate the fundamental right to vote because there are other opportunities to vote that don't involve um, this, um, this particular expenditure. Um, I know this is pure speculation, but while the ball's in your court, is there any reason to think this will go to the full panel at this point? Or, or do you imagine that in this case, the three-judge panel was so firm in its ruling that it's not likely to go to the whole court? It strikes me as very unlikely. Yeah. Um, so, some of the more, some of the unbank examples that we've seen recently have been um, when uh, there's been a panel um, that you know that is that is probably that is potentially in the minority in terms of kind of where the full court would be. Um, and I don't have any reason to think that that's the case here. Um, you know, surprises happen, but it, it, it strikes me as unlikely. Um, Michelle, what do you think when you look at that? Is 58 cent, I mean, the, you know, this is the ACLU, a respected civil rights organization, uh, Black Voters Matter. Um, do you have any, do you find any fault with the court saying, no, people should be, they do have alternatives, they don't necessarily have to spend 58 cents, although, Michelle, I will say that the new Georgia law reduces the number, the availability of drop boxes. Go ahead. That's exactly right. And obviously, I will defer to our constitutional scholar when I talk about the constitutionality of uh, two stamps um, to be put on an absentee ballot. But what I want to do is I just want to pull back this issue from the specifics of this case to the broader issue of why we're focusing and talking about this at all, right? Because the fact is that this case and these discussions that we're having are taking place in the shadow of SB202, which the Department of Justice has brought a lawsuit against to the state of Georgia for alleging restrictive and discriminatory changes to our election law, right? So one huge point of contention that we've alluded to is the restriction in the avenues to timely return absentee ballots with smaller time frames and restricting Dropbox access, which we could drop off without a stamp, uh, times and places where people could uh, vote uh, without cost, right? I also, I'm gonna note that mail-in absentee ballot returns are now the only way that absentee ballots can be returned outside of times when you can vote in person, right? One more thing I will note, um, without arguing the constitutionality, is that the need for not just one, but two first-class postage stamps um, was not really mm. clearly indicated on the outside of the absentee ballot. And I know this because I myself could not figure out whether how many stamps to put on, so I ended up putting it in the Dropbox to eliminate that middleman. And it does pose a barrier for some for whom it's difficult to make these in-person voting locations. And while that is technically probably legal, as, as Professor Smith alluded to, it could still pose an outsized barrier for certain voting communities. And I think that's why we're having this conversation. Leo, um, I'm running out of time, but Michelle Al makes the point that a lot of this is uh, really a reflection of the larger concern about many of the aspects of SB 202. No, I just wanted to say support your local um, activist organizations get involved so that the the machinations of voting are being supported 
as these legal arguments are being made. All right. I, Leo Smith, i got to give you the last word. We're completely out of time. So, Leo, thank you. Renee Alegria, Fred Smith, Michelle Lau, what a pleasure to have all of you on the show today. Once more, we say a final goodbye on Political Rewind, but not in our lives, to Amelia Brock, a fine and talented senior producer. Who knows if we'll ever find anyone to replace her. That's it for us. Back again tomorrow. Stay safe. Please stay healthy, wear a mask when you're inside, and tell your friends to get vaccinated if they work for the state. They can now make some money on the deal. Take care, everybody.